John chapter 12, let's begin at verse 20 and read the word of the Lord together. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now, Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for this, the, the spirit of rejoicing in this house. And now I ask that you will open our hearts that we may hear and receive your word with gladness. Let it penetrate our hearts. Let it touch us where we need you. I lift up other life-giving churches. I pray blessing upon them. I lift up our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you. And I especially pray for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith ask that in this season, this holy season, that you will draw them to a place of repentance. Don't let one of them be lost, I ask. Thank you for hearing our prayer, that we pray in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Before you're seated, tell somebody you can find Jesus if you're looking for him. The city of Jerusalem had swollen to more than twice its normal population, with more pilgrim travelers arriving every day as the nation of Israel prepared to celebrate the Feast of Passover. Business was booming as foreign coins were exchanged for temple shekels, and animals certified by the temple authorities as being ceremonially clean were purchased for sacrifice. There was excitement in the air and a buzz of energy in the streets. Everywhere you turned, people were asking about the man named Jesus. Given the controversy he had created and the disdain with which he was viewed by the religious elite, everybody wondered if he would dare to be seen at this holy occasion. Until now, he had shunned the spotlight and refused the accolades of the masses. Anytime people wanted to elevate him, he would retreat. Anytime people wanted to shout his praise, he would instruct them to keep quiet and not tell anybody what had happened. When great crowds flocked to him, he would intentionally say something so harsh, so bizarre, so shocking that many would leave shaking their heads at what had possessed them to follow him in the first place. When the people saw Jesus riding into town on the back of the young donkey, they immediately knew there had been a dramatic shift. The normal mode of transportation for Jesus was walking. But here he was riding on an animal, not just any animal, a young donkey. This wasn't the lowly beast of burden we think of it today. This was the animal a king would ride when he came to a city in peace. The moment the crowd saw him on that donkey, they recognized this action as a fulfillment of the words of the prophet in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on the colt, the foal of a donkey. 
A lone voice cried out, but the cry was soon picked up by another, then another, until soon it seemed everybody in the city was shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. For the first time, Jesus didn't try to quiet them. He didn't hide. He didn't retreat. For the first time in his ministry, Jesus accepted their praise. He allowed and even encouraged the affirmation that he was indeed the promised Messiah. Now, each of the gospel writers adds some unique detail to the narrative of this story. But here in our text, the Apostle John records a scene that occurs right on the heels of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem that isn't recorded in any of the other gospels. In John's narrative, we are introduced to some people who are called Greeks. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean they were people from Greece, but rather, this is a term often used in the New Testament to describe someone not Jewish. These people are what are known as Gentile God-fearers. They aren't proselytes, they aren't converts to, to Judaism, but they are Gentiles who admire the Jewish faith and respect its traditions. They aren't part of the faith, but they're curious about the faith. They don't have a relationship with Jesus, but they've heard about him, and they want to know more. These inquisitive, curious people come to Philip, probably because he has a Hellenistic name and comes from the Greek region of Bethsaida, and they express an interest in seeing Jesus. Now, when we hear that, it sounds like these men want to have Jesus pointed out to them so they can look at him, so they can see who he is and what he looks like. Another meaning this can have is like what happened when someone called the office recently and asked if they could come in and see me. Well, they didn't want to come and stand at the door and look in at me. They wanted to talk to me, have a conversation with me. That's part of what these men were asking. At the same time, the words come and see in the New Testament mean so much more than just having a conversation. It's almost a formula for discipleship. The request to see Jesus is in actuality an invitation to belief. These are foreigners who now stand ready to put their faith in Jesus and join as his followers. As I've reflected on this part of Jesus' story, I've been reminded that there are people today who are strangers and foreigners to the faith but who want to see Jesus. There are people in our world who are looking for the peace and the joy and the hope and the sense of fulfillment that comes from a relationship with Jesus. There are people in our world looking for the real Jesus. Not some imitation, but the real deal. There are people looking for something. They don't even know what to call it, but they're looking for something to fulfill the deep longing in their soul. And those of us who are followers of Jesus know what they're looking for. They're looking for Jesus. The question is, where will they find him? Some people looking for Jesus begin their search in the manger. And I understand why they would do that. After all, we make such a big deal out of baby Jesus in the manger every December 25th, you know. 
anymore, the, the race to Christmas starts long before Thanksgiving, and by the time Christmas Day actually rolls around, we're almost too exhausted to enjoy it. People looking for Jesus in the manger come like curious shepherds in response to the song of the angels who proclaimed, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. People looking for Jesus in the manger come like ancient wise men following a star, seeking him who is born king of the Jews. Uh, but when people come to the manger today, all they find is an empty stable. There is no baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes. There is no Emmanuel lying on a bed of straw. Too many people want to camp around a manger in Bethlehem, reveling in the nostalgia of days long past. Remembering the sweet scene of Mary and Joseph kneeling before the baby Jesus with animals in the stalls and a clear night spangled with stars overhead. This is as far as some people ever get. But if you remain camped around the manger, you'll never find Jesus. When Jesus can't be found in the manger, some follow his trail to the temple. They marvel at the reports they've heard of this 12-year-old boy so full of wisdom and insight that he's teaching the elders. However, when they arrive at the temple, they discover uh, they're too late to see Jesus. He's gone, and word on the street is that he's been spotted in Galilee. His teaching ministry has become nationally known. In addition to the teaching, there are incredible miracles. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the mute speak. Those who are demonized are delivered. Common well water is transformed into the highest quality vintage wine. A small sack lunch of fish and bread is multiplied to become a banquet to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. Raging storms lay quietly at his feet in response to his command. Leprosy is cleansed. Even, even the dead are brought back to life. Oh, wouldn't you like to see Jesus in the Galilee? To hear his voice, to feel his touch, to witness his mighty miracles. But if you go to the Galilee today, you won't find him. Someone said they heard he was riding into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey. Crowds have thronged the streets. They're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. <laughs> the religious elite are angry. They protest, telling Jesus to quiet his followers. The proclamation of him as king is disturbing the peace of the city and threatening to call down the wrath of Rome. Jesus hears their complaint and he responds, well, you know, if they remain quiet, the rocks and stones are going to cry out in their place. It's as if all creation stands poised to shout his praises and honor him as the one who rules and reigns over all. But if you go to the streets of Jerusalem today, you'll just find the people going about normal daily routines. There is no processional. There are no shouts of Hosanna. If you want to see Jesus, you won't find him in the streets of Jerusalem. Some by this time would be ready to give up the search. But those who persevere will follow the trail to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. It was here Jesus was pressed and crushed as he wrestled between giving in to the desires of his flesh and submitting to the will of his Father. Here he prayed in such agony that he began to sweat drops of blood. 
Here he made the ultimate surrender when he prayed, if it be possible, let this cup of suffering pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Today, however, the garden is silent. The prayer is over. The surrender is complete. Jesus is no longer here. Instead, I heard he was led to Pilate's hall to be tried as a criminal. The triumph of Palm Sunday has turned into the agony of a vindictive arrest. The same cheering crowd that cried, Hosanna to the son of David, has now become a jeering mob shouting, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Blood is trickling down his cheeks from a thorn-pierced brow. Gaping wounds mar his face where his beard has been ripped away. Swelling is growing around bruises to his head and body where he has been bludgeoned. His back is lacerated and his internal organs are exposed from the vicious whipping he has endured. Yet he doesn't open his mouth in his own defense. Weakened from loss of blood and shock to his system, he staggers and falls under the weight of the beam of his cross. And another is conscripted to bear it the rest of the way to the place of execution. It is there at Calvary, the place of the skull, where many people expect to see Jesus. Even today, we have crucifixes hung on walls and in shrines and places of worship. When some think of Jesus, all they remember is the cross. And it's true, the cross is important. It's true that without the cross, the relationship between God and humanity would never be restored. It's true that the sin debt was fully paid at the cross. It is the power of the cross that causes us to sing, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Sins are washed away at Calvary. Burdens are lifted at Calvary. Guilt is vanquished at Calvary. Doubt and fear are turned to faith and hope at Calvary. To a mocking, cynical world, the cross looks like a miserable defeat. But to the redeemed, the cross is our greatest hope. In light of the importance of the cross, surely Calvary is where we will find Jesus. But no, Jesus isn't there. Jesus died there. But then they took him down from that cross. They wrapped his body in a clean linen cloth. They placed him in a borrowed tomb that belonged to one of his secret followers, Joseph of Arimathea. A stone was rolled in place to seal the entrance, and guards were posted outside. Surely, if you're looking for Jesus, the tomb is where you'll find him. Death is so final. You know, you can move from one address to another. You can escape from one difficulty after another. But when death comes, that's the end. Surely, if you're looking for Jesus, 
this is where you'll find him. But now, when you come to the place of his burial, you can find his grave clothes, but he isn't there. The testimony of the angels, of the committed followers, and even of the affirmed skeptics is exactly the same. He is not here. He is risen. Behold the place where he lay. Early on the morning of the first day of the week, resurrection power coursed through his body. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. Ha! He came forth out of the tomb, victorious over the last enemy of mankind, which is death. And he holds the keys of death, hell, and the grave. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? So now we have a dilemma. Sirs, we want to see Jesus. This is the great desire and longing of the human heart. But when we travel to every place we know he's been, we discover he's no longer there. Not lying in the manger, not teaching in the temple, not performing miracles by the shores of the Galilee, not riding into Jerusalem, not agonizing in Gethsemane, not accused in Pilate's judgment hall, not hanging on a cross on Calvary's hill, not buried in a borrowed tomb. So if you're looking for Jesus, let me tell you where you will find him today. You'll find him in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm telling you, the resurrected Jesus is ascended back to the Father. The carpenter of Nazareth is busy. He's preparing a heavenly home for all who put their faith in him. That's where you'll find Jesus. He's busy preparing a heavenly home. It's such a splendid place he's building. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Uh, but we are told that the walls of that city are jasper, the streets are gold, the entrance gates are a single pearl, there's a crystal sea, it's a place where sin cannot enter, it's a place where loved ones are never more separated by death, it's a place where every tear is wiped away, it's a place where peace reigns supreme, it's a place of inexpressible joy, it's a place of knowing and being known, it's a place where the tree of life is blooming and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. It's a place where every action has meaning and every task has purpose. It's a place of no curse. It's a place of no night. And Jesus himself is the light of the city. Oh, don't you want to go? If you're looking for Jesus, you'll find him preparing a heavenly home. Then, if you're looking for Jesus, you'll find him in Colossians 3, verse 1. 
Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and according to Hebrews 7.25, he's engaged in an important ministry. He's making intercession for the saints. So that means Jesus is praying for you. Right now, Jesus is praying for you. I'm not doing this well. Let, let me say it one more time, okay, just, just, just for emphasis. Right now, Jesus is praying for you. Right now, Jesus is looking at the struggle you're in, and he's sitting next to the Father, and he's leaned over, and he's speaking your name in his ear. Jesus is praying for your strength. Jesus is praying for your courage. Jesus is praying for your confidence. Jesus is praying for your endurance. Jesus is praying for your deliverance. Jesus is praying for your victory. Jesus is praying for your faith not to waver. Jesus is praying for your resources to not run out. Jesus is praying for your enemies not to prevail. Jesus is praying for your hope not to fail. Jesus is praying for you. tell you another place you can find Jesus. You can find him in Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. And verse 20 then goes on and tells us the meaning of this vision when it says, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What this tells me is that if you are looking for Jesus, Jesus is present in his church. The Lord of glory walks in the midst of his church. His presence is felt as we join in praise and worship of the King of all kings. He hears our prayers, he receives our praise, he grants our petitions, he encourages our perseverance. Every time we come together as the people of God, Jesus is in our midst. This is his church. He walks up and down the aisle in the midst of his church. And it isn't just the building. See, the church isn't bricks and mortar, the church is people. So, so, so take a moment, would you please, and just look around. Go, go ahead, look around you. See the people sitting in this place. You see them? If you're looking for Jesus, you'll find him in those who are his followers. 
Jesus walking, is walking in the midst of their lives. He's in their joy and he's in their sorrow. He's in their successes and he's present even in their failures. He's in their prosperity and he's also in their poverty. Anywhere you find people serving others in his name, that's where you'll find Jesus. Even if it's nothing more than a cup of cold water, when they do it under the least of these, they're doing it unto Jesus. I'm telling you, Jesus is in your hands. Jesus is in your feet. Jesus is in your words. Jesus is in your hugs. Jesus is in your smile. Jesus is in your giving and in your helping and in your serving and in your caring and in your loving. That's where you'll find Jesus. Jesus is preparing a heavenly home. That's where you'll find him. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is present in his church. Finally, I would tell you, if you're looking for Jesus, you'll find him in Psalm 34 and 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed, crushed in spirit. Jesus is providing relief for your pain. When you hurt the most, that's when the Lord is closest to you. Now, I know that sounds contradictory because when we hurt the most, that's often when we feel the most estranged from Jesus. When we hurt so bad, we can't see him, we can't hear him, we can't feel him. Where are you, Jesus? Anybody ever cried that besides me? I'm reminded of the event told in the Gospel of John. It occurs right after the resurrection of Jesus. You remember Mary was at the tomb. She saw the tomb was empty and, and an angel appeared to her and told her to go tell the disciples. Remember that? She went and told the disciples what she had seen that morning and Peter and John raced to the tomb. They looked in, they examined the evidence and then they went away trying to puzzle out what they had just seen. Well, the Bible tells us that Mary came back to the tomb. And after Peter and John left, she stood outside the tomb weeping. Do you, do you remember that scene? Well, do you remember what happens next? The Bible says while she's standing outside the tomb weeping, Jesus appears to her. He comes up to her. She sees him, but she doesn't recognize him. In fact, she supposes he's the gardener. I wish I, had I wish I had time to talk to you about the significance of Jesus in the garden and Jesus as the gardener. I wish I had time to talk about all the way in Genesis where the Lord planted a garden and called it Eden and he was the first gardener and now she thinks he's the gardener. But I don't have time to do that. So I'll have to... I'll have to Squeeze that in another sermon somewhere, you know. She thinks he's the gardener. Jesus, the one that has been her close, dear friend, the one she has walked with, the one she's listened to teach, the one she has lavished her affection upon. Jesus, the most important person in her life, is right there. But her grief is so strong she can't recognize him. 
I think we all understand that. We've all been in that place where we hurt so bad we can't see Jesus. But I'm telling you, when you hurt the most, that's when the Lord is closest to you. He is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. His invitation is Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's in those times when we're hurting and grieving and suffering. Those are the times when we begin to wonder if Jesus is present. That's when we look for Jesus and it seems he's nowhere to be found. It's in those times doubt creeps in and we begin to, to wonder if Jesus even cares. Have you ever done that? I have. Have you ever wondered, does Jesus care? This was the question in the mind of the hymn writer. He wrestled with this and he wrote, does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress, and the way grows weary and long? Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear? As the daylight fades into deep night shades, does, does he care enough to be near? He went, he went on, he, he just kept struggling. Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief I find no relief, though my tears flow all the night long. Some of you know what that's like. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? My sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it aught to him? Does he see? I suspect most of us have been in that place where those kinds of questions have haunted our mind. Most of us have wondered, does Jesus care? Most of us have had those times when we looked for Jesus in all the places we thought he would be, only to find he wasn't there. And we've wondered if he could be found. We wondered if he saw our struggle, if he heard our prayer, if he understood our pain. We wondered if he really cared. Thankfully, the hymn writer didn't have to stop with the questions. Somewhere in the middle of asking all of those things and, and crying those tears and experiencing that pain, somewhere along the way, he was able to tap into his assurance point. He was able to answer the questions with confident trust. He looked and he found Jesus near to the brokenhearted. And he began to write words of assurance that I want you to grab hold of today. When he came through all the crying, all of the pain, all of the suffering, he touched his assurance point and was able to look up finally and say, Oh, yes, he cares. 
I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Hear the word of the Lord one more time. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If you're looking for Jesus, that's where you'll find him. If you're hurting, if you're suffering, if you're struggling, the Lord is near. He's as close as the mention of his name. He hears your cry. He helps those who put their trust in him. If you need him, just call on him. His promise is Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. Stand with me, please. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. I wonder if there's somebody in this house today and you would say, Pastor, that's where I've been. I'm struggling. I need to find Jesus there near to me. I need his help in a place of my struggle. Can I just see your hand? Just hold it up. I, I'm struggling. I need Jesus. I need to see him. I need to find him. He's right there next to you. You know, that hand you've got holding up right now, if, if you'll just close it, you'll, you'll, you, you won't be able to feel it tangibly, but I'll tell you, you're closing it around the hand of the master who right now is reaching to you. And when you can't hold on to him any longer because you've become too weak, you don't have to worry because he's holding on to you. And he's not going to let you fall. <laughs> he's not going to let you fall. <clears throat> Hear me, he's not going to let you fall. You're going to make it. You're going to get through this because he's near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Lord Jesus, I believe what I've preached today because it's your word, and I believe your word, and I'm asking now that you will confirm that word in the lives of these people that are turning to you, 
they've raised their hands saying they need to find you near to them. They need to find you because they're struggling in an area. I don't know what that area is, but Lord, you know. And I'm asking you now to extend your hand and wrap your arms around them and let them have the assurance that you care and that you are near to them and that you are their deliverer, their savior, their helper. Oh, Lord, right now we turn to you in the quietness of this moment. And I ask that you would infuse them with new hope and new joy and new peace and new life and a new sense of purpose and a new sense of can do. Right now, Lord, it, it may look hopeless. It may appear impossible. But you are God of the impossible. Manifest yourself, I pray, in their lives. And give them the assurance and the courage to keep moving forward in you and with you. And I thank you for doing that today. Thank you for hearing our prayer. Thank you for doing that. In Jesus' name. Jesus. Would you sing that one more time as an assurance point? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the day last line one more time I know I know come on I know my Savior cares He cares for you 